thank you for your donation to Corbono, a nonprofit organization dedicated to the study of Scripture according to the mind of the Catholic Church. If you like this talk, we invite you to share our website, www.corbono.com, with others so that together we may participate in the evangelization of the third millennium. Our speaker, Najim Awad, lives in San Diego, California with his wife and seven children and has been studying and teaching scripture since 1995. Najib believes the Catholic Church holds and teaches the fullness of truth, and with his tremendous zeal and insight, he is able to communicate that raw truth without sugarcoating the teachings of the Catholic Church. He also believes that our job is not to change the truth, but to communicate it clearly and directly to others. And now, here's Najib. So we have left last time at the very end of chapter 2, the book of Genesis. Um, and we need to go back uh, for a couple more additional comments that I wanted to make and then um, continue onward in chapter 3. First, one thing I wanted to point out to you is that the, there is, in uh, Hebrew, a relationship between earth and Adam, which is, which is to say that the word earth is Adama, and the word Adam, well, it's Adam. Um, and that suggests that there is this intrinsic relationship between Adam and Adama, between Adam and the earth. And, um, and the, the notion, therefore, is that Adam is to, is to till and guard the garden, which is this particular place that truly represents all of creation. And, and that is because, in a sense, the, the earth and the universe is something that is deeply connected to Adam. Uh, the universe is made for man. And it was the duty of Adam to till and guard. And we spent quite a bit of time last time talking about this business of tilling and guarding. And we're going to see a little bit more today. Now, just as there is this relationship between Adam and Adama, Adam and earth, there's also a relationship between Adam and Eve. In Hebrew, it will be Ish and Isha. So he's connected towards the woman in a, in a way that is similar to the way he's connected to the earth. He says of the woman, at last, this is flesh of my flesh, bone of my bone. But he's also made from the, from the earth. So what is that supposed to mean? What does that represent? What does it point to? All of that is pointing to Christ. All of that is a figure of Christ. If you recall from the four senses of the scripture, we've said that the literal sense, the sense that was intended by the author, is really the foundation for the three spiritual senses of scripture. One, which is the sense of scripture according to which we find Jesus Christ. A second, the sense of scripture according to which we find the church and the end times. And the third, the sense of scripture in which we find the moral teaching, us. What is scripture telling me today? 
The truth of the matter is, the body and our intelligence are both expression of our soul. The body is the soul informed, or the body is the soul in form, in physical manifestation. And therefore, the seat of intelligence is not the brain, the brain is just the muscle. The seat of intelligence is the soul. The body was created for a reason. There is a fundamental reason why the body was created. Why did he create us with a body? What is the purpose of our body? That is going to be a key question we're going to ask as we get to the end of this chapter. I'm bringing this to your attention because all too often we read scripture in a very trivial way. We don't take the time to ponder those things because we take them for granted. God created us out of earth because God could not have done it any other way. Therefore, there's nothing for us to learn there. That's the exact opposite of the truth. The truth is that God created us out of the earth because there is precisely something for us to learn. That we are made out of earth. Therefore, we're not made out of what? Heaven. So that defines man and it defines its current limitation. Which means that even in his blessed natural state, Adam could not have, could not have entered heaven. What is the difference between the, 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 the state in which Adam was in and the state that is promised to us? The difference is that Adam did not behold the beatific vision. Did not see God the way God is. Now one might think, well, okay, so what? Well, to get an appreciation of why knowledge is the source of happiness. You know the, the hostage Ingrid Betancourt? You've heard of her, right? The Peruvian French woman who was held hostage for six years. And she was freed in a rather dramatic fashion recently. You're all aware of the story in one way, shape, or form, right? Yes? No? No? Okay. So very briefly, this is a woman who was held hostage by rebels for six years and she has just been freed in a rather dramatic way. So for six years, her parents had not seen her face to face. I just want you to imagine the moment when that plane opened up and her mother saw her and she saw her mother. How do you think they felt? Can you have a taste for that feeling? Why? Her mother knew she was saved. So why didn't her mother say, Honey, I'm so glad you're doing well. Your dad and I have a game of golf. See ya. Why did she have a need to go see her? What does that bring more than the fact that she knows that she's already saved? Why? Why do we have that need? Why is joy connected with seeing? Or touching? Or hugging? And why were we created this way? Because it's in preparation of that moment where we're going to see, touch, and hug God. And that's what Adam could not have had in the garden, which is promised to you and me. And that's why Jesus' is saying is, in speaking of St. John the Baptist, that of all the prophets, he was the greatest. But truly, truly, I say to you, the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than him. And he meant greater than St. John the Baptist living on earth, not greater than St. John the Baptist in heaven. Okay? People get confused over this sometimes. Okay? He meant of John as he was alive on earth, being the last of all the, old, the, the prophets of the old covenant, which is the covenant, the earthly covenant, the covenant of earth. Right? And all the children of the supernatural covenant who are promised eternal life and seeing God the way He is are obviously greater than He because there's such a vast difference between the two. So let's go back to earth. What is then, I asked you this question, why do we have a body? 
Why did God give us a body? He could have created us like angels, right? Sort of, you know, you f- flop around and you fall in love. And when two of these beings kind of fall in love, they kind of align and their laser beams shooting. And then poof, there's a third one that shows up. I mean, he could have done it this way, right? Why didn't he? Why? Why did he give us a body? Why? Look at the cross. That's why. The body is earthly. It's made out of earth. What is the purpose of earth? It's to be an altar of sacrifice on which the body is to be sacrificed. For what purpose? For the purpose of love. For to behold God's beatific to behold beatific vision is to love. And there is no other way to love than to abandon that which we have so that we may gain that which we do not have. That is the purpose of our existence. That's why he made him out of earth. He made him out of earth, which represents therefore the old covenant. Earth can't speak. Earth can't talk. Earth can't provide natural food. That's what earth does. And then what did he give him? What did he make out of Adam? He made a woman infinitely superior to earth in every way. What does then the woman represent? The church. The new covenant. That which is to come. That's the relationship between the two. Both of them are symbols of the church, but the woman infinitely more so than the earth. And then they had to blow it up. Now, let's see why. Remember, we started looking at this last week, and we saw that in the silence of Adam, there is already a form of a brooding, a brooding tendency to rebellion. Adam doesn't speak. Adam doesn't talk. You know, Adam is uh, it's like God saying to Adam, so what's up, Adam? What's wrong? Nothing. You know, it's something that guys do quite a bit. Something's wrong? No, nothing. They just sit there and brood. There's this dark cloud hanging over their heads with thunder and lightning and rain right over their head, right where they're sitting. It follows them everywhere. And you know, what's wrong? Nothing. Nothing wrong. You know why? You got exhibit A right there. God has to do everything for him. He has to tell him, it's not good for you to be alone. And he had to actually do everything for him. And even after all of this, look what happens. So before we see what happens, let's go back to that last verse. And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was... I'm sorry, wrong. Okay, so verse 25 of chapter 2, the last one. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Okay, so first of all, I again want you to notice the irony of Scripture. We're so used to the text, we don't even see it. But, I mean, try to read it for the first time. First, notice the lofty, poetic level that we're at when Adam sees Eve, right? This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man leaves his father and his mother and cleaves to his wife, and they become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. We interrupt our program to bring you this little (laughs) fact. That's it. Now, what is the next verse? Now the serpent. It's like somebody just said something to, to, to see if you're still awake. Watch. It's completely out of context. It's one verse. One sentence. That's all that there is to it. 
This at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore a man leaves his father and his mother and cleaves to his wife and they become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now the serpent was more subtle than any other wild creatures. Which other wild creature? That is inserted there in a very um, um, telegraphic fashion. It's extremely direct, out of context it seems. What's the purpose of this one verse? And it's just one verse. And that one verse is of immense importance for us. The man and the woman were both naked and were not ashamed. So what is the point of this verse? It's to affirm something positive, they were both naked, and something negative, were not ashamed. Right? The structure is always the same. Oftentimes, Scripture will affirm something positive, and then... Reiterated negatively. There's these two parts. So what is the part that is positive? The positive part is that they were naked. And we may not think this is positive, but again, we have to think through. We have to put ourselves back in the garden. Back in the garden. They were naked and they were not ashamed. In order to understand why this is important, we have to understand the purpose of shame. Let me ask you this question. Is shame in our current condition, is shame a good thing or a bad thing? It's actually a good thing. It's a defense mechanism. It's a defense mechanism. What is the purpose of a sense of shame? Where does it lead us to? What does it help us nurture? Modesty. Modesty. Right? Modesty is the response to shame. Modesty is the response to shame. Let's unravel this a little bit more because it's such an important concept for our time and we seem to have lost a little bit uh, you know an understanding of this when Adam and Eve were in the garden why was it that they could actually be naked and not feel shame before the fall when Adam saw Eve what did he see now that is our problem we can't see what he saw at least not without the work of grace, and a lot of it. That's the difference between Adam and us. What Adam saw naturally is unnatural to us. I'm going to repeat that. When Adam beheld Eve for the first time, what he saw is alien to us. That's what original sin did. It broke our nature. What did he see? We need to try and capture that. Here's the best way I could describe it to you. And you will see why it's so difficult for us to see it this way. He saw what a kid of, say, five or six years old would see under the Christmas tree. Let me repeat that. He saw what a kid, about five or six, would see under the Christmas tree. That's what he saw. He saw the fulfillment of his dreams. He saw the answer to his solitude. He saw a gift. Now, I'm going to be more specific. When he saw Eve, did he see her soul? Did he say to her, let me look in your eyes so I may see your soul? What did he say? At last, this one is what? Not soul of my soul. Flesh of my flesh 
bone of my... So what did he see? Her body. Let's be very clear here. He didn't take a look at Eve and went, whoa. That's not what he did. He looked and admired and enjoyed. See, that's where our problem... That's when the... You know, the... That's when we start having issues. Because we are not like he was. But that's what he saw. And he didn't avert his eyes. And he didn't hide from it. And he didn't just look at her eyes. He saw her entire body and he saw it just like a kid would see a gift under the Christmas tree. That's what we can't see. That's our problem. Now, let's now turn the thing around and think about what Eve... About Eve for a second. Eve was born and as she was brought to Adam, she saw this man... Looking at her, what do you what, what do you think she thought? How she felt about it? Can you try to imagine how she felt about this? Let me tell you how she felt about it. She felt about it the way a little girl of six years old would feel if her dad would go and grab her and tell her, "You're the greatest in the world. I'm so proud of you." That's how she felt. She felt completely fulfilled. When did she feel completely fulfilled? When Adam looked at her body and saw her. You understand? When he looked at her body and saw her. There was no distinction between her body and her. What does that mean? It means that Adam did not see in her body parts. He saw her for what she was, and it was her for what she was as a full woman, as a woman that was the gift. And she knew that that's how he saw her. And in that vision, she was fulfilled. A woman is happy, truly happy in the gaze of a man. For a woman to be truly happy, she needs a man to gaze lovingly upon her. That's how, she's, how you're created. I'm not making that stuff up. This is God's plan. And when she sees this gaze of love upon her, she responds freely with love, and the two will become one. That is why the statement was they were naked, and they were not ashamed. Now, they were not ashamed has a positive implication. What's the positive implication? There's something really positive there going on. The positive implication is that sexuality is a good thing. All right? The constant teaching of the Catholic Church, you may not be aware of it, but the constant teaching is that sex isn't just good. Sex is also holy. But sex is very, very good because God created it. For the purpose of what? What is the purpose of sex? The purpose of sex before children, I always get that answer. No, it's not it. Because otherwise, couples who can't have children are left out in the cold. That's not it. There are two purposes, right? The unitive, procreative. But the unitive is just as important. What is the purpose of Unitive, what does that mean? It means that in the union of the bodies, 
in that act, in an active act of union between the two bodies, there is God's will being fulfilled. So therefore, what is sex? It's the prayer of the body. Somebody once asked me, you mean prayer should feel that good? Yeah, that's the whole idea. Is that through this earthly connection, through the bodily connection, we learn about heaven. We learn about the language of heaven. So think of it this way. Sex is the ABC of the language of heaven. You're just learning your alphabet. Because in heaven, the ecstasy that the human soul will go through when seeing God as He is would be today unbearable to us. Our bodies cannot support it. The pleasure that is coming through is so strong that we would die. It's, it's nearly, I mean, it, unless, with the special grace of God, it's impossible for the human body, as it is today, and the state that it is, to take in the, the beatific vision of God. The, the, the ecstasy would just kill us. That's the purpose of sex. So that's what they were living in the garden. Not bad for a little bit of a tilling and keeping. Not bad at all. So now, let's, re, let's, let's recap that. Adam and Eve were not alone. God was with them. Therefore, they never felt lonely. What is loneliness? Loneliness is a breakdown in relationship that says, I am not appreciated the way I am. Therefore, I am not seen as I truly am and appreciated as a gift. No one tells me you are a gift. So in a society bent on contraception, children, children are never seen as gift. They're not told their gift. They're not looked upon as a gift. Even when the family or the parents are having a rough time. By contracepting, fundamentally, the parents are saying, children are a curse. I have to limit this. I have to take the medication to fix the disease. And therefore, the contraceptive mentality sets in, and we don't tell our children, you are a gift from God. And we don't see them as a gift from God. And when the child is not seen as a gift from God, the child is lonely. You know all these problems we have in school, problems of behavior, problems of conduct, the fact that the kids are doing this and that and the other? They can do all the programs they want, and they can do all the studies they want, and they can try everything they want. As long as we don't tell our children, you are a gift to me, and you are worth that I spend my life as a mother with you at home and take care of you as a mother at home and be there for you as long as you need me, we're never going to fix the problem. As long as we tell our girls what you should do is focus on your career and go work and be busy and really work and be more busy and never enjoy your children and contraceptive because you can't have too many of them because you're working, you're busy, you have a career... We, basically, are calling upon us God's curse, which is, effectively, to give us what we want. The breakdown in the family starts right there, when the man and the woman do not see each other as a gift from God. When they see each other more as things to be exploited, as objects. Nothing more than an object of pleasure, of solitary pleasure. Enjoyed for this moment and thrown away. The woman becomes a disposable object. The man becomes a disposable object. Solitude sets in. And after solitude, regrets come in. And when regrets come in, bit by bit it turns into despair and resentment and anger. And the heart hardens. And that's what happens in family where people contracept. 
That's the tragedy of our, of our time for families. We have to reverse this trend. This is why the church is a wise mother, and as a wise mother, she warns us against those dangers and tells us, you're, not gonna have, you're never going to be happy having a career. You may have momentary moments of satisfaction, but the career as such will not make you happy. Substantially, you're never going to be happy. What is happiness at the end of the day? It's to be. It's to be in the eye of the beloved. It's to be in that moment of eternity where you know that you exist, that you are a gift, that you're appreciated, and that the person you're with really, really, really wants to be with you and couldn't think about being without you and would do anything to be with you. That is happiness. If you think career is going to give you that, good luck. But that's what Christ did on the cross. That's why He came down. Because that's how He feels about each and every one of us. That's what He wants. That's why they were naked and they were not ashamed. There was no shame. Now in our case, we have a problem. A big one. And the problem that we have starts with a man named Rousseau. French philosopher who in the 19th century decided that philosophy was very important for him so that he actually put his four kids in an orphanage so he can focus on his philosophy. Very good start. And Rousseau wrote this book where basically he said... In essence, look, man fundamentally is good. Man in his natural state is good. It's society that corrupts him. We need to fix society. We fix man. Okay? Rousseau's influence is huge today. It's huge in many ways. Number one, people today are craving nature. They want to go out be in nature. In one way, we understand why. But on the other hand they seem to think that somehow going to natural settings is going away from culture. What most of us don't understand is there's no such thing as nature. There's only culture. We can't run away from who we are. We're cultural beings. But this notion that nature is going to rejuvenate us, that nature is going to heal us, and nature will do all these good things to us, stems from the fact that we're fundamentally good. There's no original sin, see? We don't need to go to confession. We don't need to confess our sins and receive the grace of God and be healed and... No, we just can take a walk in the wood and we'll feel better. Yeah, we feel better naturally, but the heavy weight of sin remains. Nothing can take that out other than Jesus Christ. Okay? That's the one problem. The second problem is in the, in the, in the, in the fashion. The fashion is predicated upon the notion that for a girl to show her body is a good thing. There is no shame. It rejects the notion of shame because it rejects the notion of original sin. There's nothing to be ashamed of. And so, most of the dress code today is extremely, what shall I say? Uh, Diplomatically, yes. Let's just say it is not modest. That's an understatement. All right? It's not modest. And the problem with that is that, therefore, by not protecting the virtue of modesty... You erode the sense of shame. And when you erode the sense of shame, what sets in, therefore, is the collapse of the values to where a woman starts to think of herself and is esteemed only by her looks. And when this happens, she will never be seen as a gift. She has to fit within this mold. And if she varies away from this mold and wait, God forbid, then she's doomed. She she becomes non-existent. Because she's... Now, not fitting anymore in that mold that attracts the eye. Think about that kind of tyranny. 
that is imposed on women today. Think about the tyranny of the fashion. What it imposes on women today. I'm sorry for you. And I'm glad I'm not a woman. Sorry to say, but I have to say it this way. In a sense that this is crazy. Why have we allowed society to impose these norms upon us? Because we've forgotten who we are. We need to go back. And mothers and women in general, you need to reflect on fashion. Do you know there's this little book written by this gal, um, published by Tan, I think, right? I think it's by 10. Well, she basically traces the history of fashion. And she shows you that in order to get fashion going, they had to actually bring in prostitutes. Because no decent woman would wear, would never wear, most of the clothes that these days you wear. It was just considered absolutely unacceptable. And today it's the norm. And they succeeded in doing this because... We've forgotten the importance of modesty. It has to be rediscovered. It has to be. This is our defense against original sin. What happened? Let's go through it. The serpent was more subtle than any other wild creature that the Lord God had made. Now, it isn't the creature, the serpent, as in the animal. Just as we have the tree of life and the tree of knowledge of good and evil, which are obviously not natural trees, this is not talking about a little serpent as a natural beast who, can, who could talk back then, it couldn't anymore. We're talking here about the devil. Interestingly enough, the word in the Septuagint, in the Greek translation of scripture, that word for serpent, is mahash, is the same word actually used for the dragon in the book of Revelation. So one reading could be that this, the dragon was more subtle. And one interpretation by, presented by Scott Hahn is actually... Satan, when Satan came to tempt them, he didn't come just as a little serpent. He came as a full-fledged dragon. Because he wanted to impress them and show them who was the strongest. It's a really interesting interpretation. I'm not going to follow it here because at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter. Whether he uses force or just subtlety. What really matters is what's going, what, the reaction of the, the man and the woman. Now, he was more subtle than, it's, it's um, more subtle than any other wild creature that the Lord God had made. It's, it's, in my mind, it's a very interesting statement because if it isn't, if he's not speaking about the serpent as such as the animal itself, why is he saying that he was more subtle than any of the wild creatures that God had made? And effectively, my thinking is that it's a way to show us to what level Satan had fallen, okay, to, to the point where he's actually being compared to wild creatures. No more being Lucifer, the the star, the the, um, um, the 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 morning star, but being actually compared to wild creatures, he said to the woman, "All right, hold on, stop, pause, again, slow down. You're used to the text. Let's look at the context. What's going on here? We've got the garden, right? We've got the garden. Who's in the garden? Adam and Eve, right? Okay, they're both naked. Yes." Okay, the garden is your house. Mr. Man, you've been put in your house to till and guard. There's a serpent in your house talking to your wife. Where are you? I mean, Scripture should have read something like this. Now, the serpent was more subtle than any other wild creatures that the Lord God had made. He attempted to speak to the woman and the man slew him. I mean, that's what should have been going on here. 
Do, do you understand the problem we're in? You see the trouble? He's supposed to till and guard. What is that text is telling us right now? All right. Do you see how the responsibility of Adam underlies most of this? Where is he? How come he leaves his wife, flesh of my flesh, bone of my bones, dealing with a serpent? He said to the woman, Did God say you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? How many of you remember what God said without reading further? Is, is that what God said? How many of you remember? Don't tell me. Just don't tell me what, what you remember. Tell me if you remember what God said. No, no, no. Do you remember? Yes or no? It's a binary question. All right. Why is that important? Because I told you earlier, all that the devil has to do is make us forget what we need to know. Not necessarily stuff our head with things we don't need to know. But if we keep on watching TV, and if we keep on watching many of those programs, especially programs that are made with uh, animated characters to show us how dysfunctional families can be really ugly, yeah, we're going to forget most of that. No particular reference to any particular program. Okay. Did God say, you shall not eat of any tree of the garden? Is that what God said? No. You notice the subtlety? Did God say, you shall not eat of, the, of any tree of the garden? Look how he took God's word and twisted it. To make God become the enemy. Let me put it to you this way. If you want to kind of relate to this. Did God say you must have as many children as you can? See, now that strikes a bell. That strikes a chord. Okay? That's not what the church teaches. But that's what he murmurs. What he done back then, he does today. Yes. Ah, wasn't she surprised that this was the first creature that spoke to her? Obviously, it sounds from the text, a good, very good point, that this was not the first time that they're talking. Because they, they seem to be on familiar terms. Yes, that underlies the problem. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the, tru- of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it. Did, guys, did God say that? Neither shall you touch it? He didn't say anything about touching. He just said, you're not going to eat from it. She adds, neither shall you touch it. Why? Well, you know, your little sister, six years old, she's at home. And she's, got, she's punished. Because she did something she's not supposed to do. And so she didn't get ice cream today. You go ask her, so, are, are, you, are you punished? Yes. Oh, so what did mom say? Mom said, I can't have any ice cream, and I can't eat dinner. What is she trying to do? To make the mom look bad, and what else? Sympathy? Victimize? Self? Self Self-pity. Of course, none of us ever do that. Never. But we never do that. See, something is rotten in the kingdom of Denmark. Well, it's actually in the garden. Something is already rotten. Why would she say that? Because she's indicating something. She's indicating her desire. You know, one way to say yes is to spend half an hour saying no. It's a long way of saying yeah, of saying yes. Keep on talking about it. You're not supposed to eat ice cream? 
No, I, I can't eat ice cream. Mom said I can't have that delicious, wonderful, soft, vanilla, all-natural made ice cream with a little bit of chocolate on top and some strawberry. You get it? Right? You want another way of saying yes? Spend half an hour saying no. That's what she's doing. Okay. So we can't just put all the blame on the serpent. Okay. We can't do that. She's got her part. Okay. What is she attracted by? What is she lacking? Obviously, she's saying that I'm lacking something. Right? I mean, if you get a guy who's got $20 billion, $20 billion, and you go to him and you try to give him 10 bucks, and let's assume he's not, you know, he's not a nutcase, he's just a normal person, just happens to be super rich, and you try to give him 10 bucks to get you to do something for him. To get him to do something for you. You think it's going to work? Why? He's satisfied. He has no need. What is she saying? Something is missing. What is it? What is the thing that is missing? Pardon? Adam? Yes? Yes? This is so profound. And this is so important. And this is the fundamental psychology of any marital relationship. You see, had this relationship between Adam and Eve been the way it was supposed to be. She wouldn't have need for that tree. She wouldn't have need to touch it. Remember what we said about love and the touch? There is a solitude that's being spoken here. What is she basically saying? In one way she's saying, if I can get that tree, he may love, he may love me. If I can get that fruit, he might love me. Uh doesn't work. Okay, girls, I got some news for you. All right? Living with a guy before marriage and the hope he's going to love you doesn't work. Never work, never would work. He's got everything he needs. You got nothing else to offer. It's over. Don't fall for it. As we can see here, didn't work either. Did it? No. But the serpent said to the woman, "You sh- you will not die." For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Question, did the serpent lie? Well, it's actually yes and no. As usual. As usual. Right? Did they die? No, they didn't die. They kept on living, right, after they ate the fruit. They didn't fall down dead, did they? So, they didn't die. But did they die? Yes, they died to the life of grace. They were cut off from God. And when you're cut off from God, you're cut off from the source that allows you to see others as a gift. And you're cut off from the source of love that sees you always as a gift. You are alone. So today, there are two kinds of people on this planet. That the kinds of people who are connected to the seven sacraments of the church and who are fed by the Lord Jesus Christ directly. And the kind of people who are outside on their own where that grace that God gave us doesn't flow directly to them in the same way. God has to use different avenues, and it's much harder to get to them. He cannot feed them in the same way. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Okay. Is God's intent for us to be like God? Is that what His plan for us is? Yes! He's not lying. He's not lying. 
God's intent is for us to be like Him. He actually wants to divinize us. He wants to take our human nature and turn it into a supernatural nature. This is another word, other theological term we use, supernatural life, the life of grace, where we participate in the nature of God, where we become truly His children. That's God's point. And He wants us, He wants to do that so that He can turn us into an image of Himself, truly. Now, what is to know good and evil? What is to know? Is it to know... Uh, if I chop down that tree and just do it for pleasure, it's a bad thing. Is that what is what it's talking about? To know good and evil? Well, what is really, what it, at the fundamental sense, we're talking about the loss of innocence. Okay? Adam and Eve were in a state of complete innocence, completely dependent on God, as children would be. Not having to worry about good and evil. When you start worrying about good and evil, what comes with that? The big R word, responsibility. Responsibility is that sin. As soon as you start knowing good and evil, you're now responsible. Okay. Knowing good and evil in this sense really is to effectively create your own code of good and evil. You decide what is good and you decide what is evil. You establish the law according to which one must live. All right? That is the fundamental notion of knowing good and evil. Not just knowing what is good and what is bad. Because after all, God told them. Didn't He? Right? You can eat of all these trees, and if, if you eat from this one, you're going to die. Doesn't that tell you that He knew what good is and what bad was? Well, obviously He did. But He did it as a child whom the law was given to. But now, He was to know, to know it as a man and a woman responsible for setting down their own law. Put differently, you're your own Pope. You're going to become infallible in deciding what is right and what is wrong. And if you think that's easy, it isn't. It's not easy because we're not God. We cannot know good and evil. We cannot, in a fundamental sense, know what is truly good and what is truly evil. On our own, we are incapable of this. Why? Because we're creatures. And we cannot get all the facts in time and space and understand them all and really judge what is good and what is evil. On our own, we cannot. That is why we have the gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is here to give us the wisdom of God to help us discern what is good and what is, what is not. And, and, and even then, it's still difficult. So the proposal that, uh, that, that, that Satan was giving them was truly destructive. He's basically saying, God knows that you'll become like Him, and He's keeping this away from you because He doesn't want you to become like Him. He's jealous. God wants to keep things for Himself and not give it to you. Now, had Eve and Adam remained in the love of God, which is the love of Christ, had they abided in that love, they would have been immune to that temptation. Because they would have known God personally and would have known that God is good. But they haven't. And therefore, they were open to this attack. And it succeeded with her. Why? Because the main temptation of a woman is through her eyes. She saw that the fruit, she saw. It's the seeing. It's the eyes. And of course, the ear. Listening, right? But a lot of us, a lot of our problems come because we see. We have plenty of mirrors at home. We have all the magazines that show you what a beautiful woman should look like. And most women torture themselves buying those magazines and going through them. And try to sort of kind of conform to this. That is 
effectively Eve's sin. She sinned through vanity. She saw that the fruit, when she heard that, she saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. Notice the word desire, not loved. Not loved. In other words, the idea, the difference between the two in a fundamental sense is that to love something or to love having something is always for the good. But to simply desire something is for personal satisfaction. Desiring things is not a bad thing in its own. But if it is only confined to itself, it becomes self-possession. It becomes something that I want instead of something that I wish for others. Right? Jesus said, I greatly desired, meaning I really wished, I really wanted to, ce- to celebrate this Passover with you. I was looking forward to it. But here, this desire we're talking about is, is wholly dif- different. It wasn't because it was something that would benefit others. It was simply something that would benefit her. Satan will never tempt you by saying, how about you just abandon your house and go live in a dump? He's not going to do that. He knows better. He will always tempt you with something good. Something that is intrinsically good. But he always quotes it with a lie. Always quotes it with a lie. And that's what happens here. So she fell for it. And then this is the verse that I love. She took of its fruit and ate... And she also gave to her husband, and he ate. I mean, <laughs> this one. <laughs> this one, is this, this is the one that gets me. <laughs> this is the one that gets me. And she just gave to the, you know, hey honey, you, you want a piece of chocolate? It, 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 it's so, sin is so natural. When we sin, there's no thunderclap. Earth doesn't, you know, open up to swallow us. There are no earthquakes. Nothing happens. There's no nothing. You know, what's a pill? Just a pill. What's the big deal? No big deal there. It's so natural. Anticlimactic. Nothing happens. She ate and she just gave to her husband, wait. All right, hold on a second. How far was he away from her when he ate? Was he like seven miles away on the other side of the garden? This verse doesn't allow us to think this way. He was really close. So all along, that serpent was tempting her, and he was there. And when he, she gave him to eat, he ate. He ate. All right, two interpretations. And uh, we can stop here and take some questions. Two interpretations of this. I don't know which one is better, but both of them are damning. First interpretation. It's the fear theory. Adam was supposed to be a type of Christ. The great test for Adam was precisely this moment. When the serpent would come, say as a dragon, or as Satan, to tempt them, Adam would do what? He would protect his wife. Even unto death. In other words, he would have laid his life for the one whom he said he loved. But when the dragon showed up, he chickened. 
Now, don't get me wrong. I would chicken too. I'm not saying I'm better than he is. That's not the implication. The fundamental implication isn't there for how strong he was or how weak he was. The fundamental implication is how close was he to God? That's the key. How close was he to God? How close are we to God in these moments? Somebody comes to you right now. Right now, comes to you, put a gun to your head and said, do you believe Jesus Christ? And you're only going to shoot if you say no. What would you say? Okay, you would say yes. Think about it. Not easy to say yes with a gun on your head. It's the Holy Spirit that will make you say yes. At that moment, it's the Holy Spirit that grabs you and gives you the love you need to feel even in that moment that you are a gift and you are loved and the Beloved is with you. And that gives you the courage to be a martyr. When people go through rough times, other people wonder, how can they do that? If the child, if they lose a child, if they lose a husband, how can they do that? Well, on their own, they can't do it. It's kind of, duh. Nobody can. We can't. Adam and Eve couldn't. And they were exhibit A. They're the best of the best among us all, except for Our Lady and St. Joseph and Our Lord. Right? But... Uh, that's it. That's the best. And they couldn't on their own. We can't. Now we, don't need, we don't need to get ourselves. But what happens is that right there, the Holy Spirit, the Consoler, the Advocate, the Spirit that Jesus sent us, comes and He holds us. And He tells us that you are beloved. And He consoles us. And He gives us the strength to move forward. And keeps the joy. So that's what he didn't have. Obviously, there is a deep disconnect that happened that prevented him from moving forward and shielding his wife. So that's the fear theory. The second one, which is worse, which is worse, it's the collaboration theory. He's already sold. He was already sold. She was the obstacle. She needed convincing. So he let the buddy, the serpent, talk to her. He abandoned, in either case, he abandoned his wife. He abandoned his charge. He abandoned the one that he was supposed to protect. He abandoned the garden that he was supposed to till and guard. Why? Why did he? Why? This is the question. He didn't have original sin. He was perfect in every other way. Why would a perfect being do that? And it's a mystery for many people, why Adam and Eve have sinned. But at the fundamental level, it really is not a mystery. And the answer to this is in the garden. Tell me something. Who is better off? Somebody who is perfect, born without original sin, living apart from Christ, or someone who was a sinner, repented from his sins, and is walking with Jesus Christ? Which of these two is better? Everybody agrees? The second one is better, yes? Right. What if now Jesus goes one step further and gives this person the power to chase demons, heal the sick, raise the dead? Would you say that this person is a lot better than Adam is? Yeah? Okay, then riddle me this. How come all the apostles abandoned him? How come they could not even, other than John, at the moment of, of, of the cross, they were all gone. They were with him. He gave them that power. He, they saw him raise the dead. They performed miracle in His name when He sent the 70 out. And they came back rejoicing. 
because of all the things they were able to do. All that happened. And they all abandoned him. Other, except for John. Not difficult. Why? Because he gives us the answer in the garden. What does he tell them to do? When he took John, James, and Peter. Pray and watch. Till and guard. You can't till and guard if you're not praying and watching. You have no defenses if you don't have a spiritual life. And if you don't guard it with your life. You are completely open to the attack of the devil. He's got you where he wants you. If you're not cultivating your own garden, which is your soul, if you're not protecting your soul with prayer and watching daily, you're completely open to falling. Not that difficult. And if you think you're immune from falling, you're in the greatest and the gravest danger. That's why St. Paul says, work out your salvation with fear and trembling. The idea wasn't that you have to be afraid. The idea was, watch and pray. Know realistically what the battle is and use the weapons that God gave us to win it. Be close to Jesus. You can't be close to Him unless you're praying and watching. And when you do so, you hear the voice of the shepherd and you recognize it. But if you don't, you'll hear the the voice of the wolf and you will follow Him. That's why they fell. In a fundamental sense, this is the, the reason. They estranged themselves from God, didn't see each other as a gift, as we're going to see next, next time. And when this happens, hunger sets in. And the devil comes and tells them, I'm going to show you how you're going to get it satisfied. And tragedy follows. The tale of the original sin is foundational. It's really, it explains to us why we are the way we are, why the humanity is broken. Why do we see all this evil out there? And it tells us what is the fundamental remedy. That unless we're close to Jesus Christ, and unless we really live a life in grace, which means frequent use of the sacrament of confession. I cannot stress it enough. I've told you before, if you have not been to confession in a long time, please go as soon as you can. All right? There's lots of material you can find on the web on how to do a good confession. Go as soon as you can. If, you're in the, in the, in the, if you've been to confession once every three years, try to go once every year. And if you're going once every year, go every once every six months. And if you're going once every six months, go once every three months. And work out your way until you're going once a week. In the world that we live in, this is not, um, th- this is not wishful thinking. This is being realistic. We need the grace of Jesus Christ. The world we live in is currently harsh and hostile. And so we need the graces that come to us from the sacrament of confession. We need as you know, frequent reception of the Eucharist. If you can go daily, do so. We need prayer. We need to spend time with Jesus. This is how we guard and protect ourselves and live the life that Christ wants for us. We have time for questions. Yes. Oh. Oh, okay, got it. I don't think so. You see, the, we, we should always remember, Adam was never alone. He had the opportunity never to be alone, because God was there. 
God would have been His all in all. So it is not just a question of emotions. It's truly a question of being human. To be human is to be close to others. It's to share with them their lives, their experiences. This is to be fully human. This is what Christ was. So it's not about a man sitting there and every day you know, unloading a bucket or two of, of, of uh, tears just so that he can show he's, he's got emotions. That's what I'm talking about. right? What I'm talking about is the wisdom to understand everybody's need and to be able to respond to the best of his abilities. So he, the man should know ahead of time what his wife needs and he should try and thrive to provide her with her needs to the best of his abilities. Without her asking. You understand? Why should a woman, why should a wife always be the one making the first move to get to talk to her husband? Why shouldn't it be the other way around? Why shouldn't a man go to his wife and say, Honey, we haven't talked in a while. I'm taking you out tonight. Just to talk. There's this perception that the availability, the being present for others, that's what I'm talking about. He doesn't have to turn himself into a woman. He can't. But it's... Being able to communicate with others in ways they feel then. Not feel only, but understand and know that they are a gift. That's what we're talking about. Yes. Can you explain that? Yes, as I said, there are two theories. One is the fear theory. He abandoned her out of fear. He was afraid. And the other one is the um, uh, complicity theory. He was complicit with the serpent because she was resisting him. Uh, Yes. Yes. The verse indicates that because there's no time. It doesn't say, and later on, she gave to her husband. It seems, it's so quick. She ate and gave. It seems to indicate a frame of time. Although we can't be sure, it could be that she gave, he gave him. But even if she did, let's assume that he wasn't there present, right? Which is a big problem, right? Why would he be there? And she gave him later. How come does he accept it without even asking a question? He doesn't question it. You see? So, yeah. Yes. It's a commentary, yes. The verse, they were naked and they felt no shame, was a commentary written, obviously, by the holy writer in the context of, uh, I suppose, Babylon. Now, remember, Babylon had these uh, liturgies, which were really uh, orgies, right? And so he's, he's striking a balance. This is, this is the beauty of the text and the power of it, is that he's not saying, he's not shunning away sexuality is a bad, bad thing, but he's putting it in the right context. He's saying, in that context... That um, the act was pure. Correct. So, yes. He's drawing a lesson out of it and he's pointing it out that a man cleaves to his wife. So, he's actually protecting and strengthening the family relationship against the notion that you just can be going left and right and, you know, the, the, the usual thing, thinking we have these days. It always kind of annoyed me personally how in many societies, including the Middle Eastern societies, even today, they insist on the woman being a virgin, but the guy could be whatever. That doesn't matter. But the girl, oh no, I mean, it's a big deal. They're ready to kill for it. Why? Is it because the guys are not important? They're trash? That you're willing to let them act like trash? Is that it? Did you see how the paganization of Christian culture occurs when we allow those types of thought to enter our house. You know, St. Cunegonde was the mother of St. Louis the Ninth. He's a king, the king of France. He was a king and he's a holy saint. 
And she wrote to him in one of the letters, and she told him, My son, I would much rather you die than you commit a venial sin. I would much rather you die than you commit a venial sin. And we turn the eyes when the guy does this and then and the other, as if it is just normal. Yes. Good question. Is it appropriate to say something to somebody about being dressed, especially if it's a woman who's dressed unmodestly? Well, <laughs> okay. <laughs> I had a friend. Um, I have a friend. who's a really good friend of mine. And he was going to church. And, and it's in the Latin rite. And, uh, the, uh, you know, there is the procession, the uh, entrance. And they carry the, the, uh, the, 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 the Bible, right? And so she was actually carrying the Bible. And, of course, she, like this. And to begin with, she had a dress that is... I would say sort of four fingers down from her hip. So you're going to imagine the spectacle. We're talking about a 19-year-old girl, right? As I'm saying, sometimes you wonder what happens. I don't know what it is. Maybe hormones or something. But be it as it may, he, of course, was very offended. And he went to her after Mass and said, Do you, you should not be dressed this way because you are, you are a, um, you're being a cause of uh, uh, mortal sins for others. Which well, he's right, she is. She's causing a scandal. On top of it, um, <clears throat> so um, uh, which means that it had had this poor girl, God forbid, died that day, she would have stood a very high probability to end up in hell. Okay, that's what we're talking about. This is not laughing matter. So he told her this. What do you think the reaction was? She looked at him. And, of course, like anyone who is living in, fundamentally, outside of the life of grace, can't accept correction, reacts as what? Self-pity. She burst out crying. Her parents are crying. What did they do? Had they had any wisdom, they would have said, See, I told you! <laughs> Instead, they yelled at him. The pastor found out, got upset over it, and my friend ended up having to write a letter, so two pages long, saying, I'm sorry. Okay, moral of the story, it isn't true that God always wants you to act. God always wants you to pray. So when you are confronted with any situation, whatever the situation is, your first reaction is to your guardian angel. Should, should I be saying something? And the proper attitude should be not, let me, let me, come on, come on, just come on, let me go. I'm, I'm just, no, the, the proper reaction should be, I hope the answer is no. Right? Because it's those who don't want to talk who talk best. And those who really want to talk should not be talking. Okay? So you pray and you let your God and angel figure out whether he wants you to do that. Remember, God acts in very, very mysterious ways. Sometimes he will let this to happen because he's increasing the punishment of this person. And of her parents. We, we don't think of this way. But God sometimes allows these things to happen for increase of punishment. Bear with me. Just a second. Let me finish this. Okay. Now, in all situations, you must be always be prepared to, to pro pro provide a, a proper response. If you had to speak to a young woman who's dressed this way, there are two ways to do it. One is to go and chide her and go, okay? I'll tell you right now, I'm not going to work. Because a girl dressed like this has already had a hardening of heart. She can't otherwise, right? Otherwise, modesty would shame her. 
Obviously, she's not shamed, so her heart is hardened. Which means, guys, you see a girl dressed like this? Go to that sidewalk. Bad fruit. Alright? You have a girl who's got a hardened heart already. So you're basically buying yourself a problem. Alright. So, the best way to approach her is to be able to provide her, to show her how much, how precious she is. And if you can't, don't do it. If you're boiling at the seam, you're just going to explode, then go explode somewhere else. Don't talk to her, pray to her, pray, pray for her. But if you are able to go to her in charity and in love and tell her, you know, you're so much worse than this. You should keep yourself for your beloved. That might touch her heart. It may not. It may just go over her head. Don't know. Hard. So pray. There's no clear-cut answer. Yes. Well, you see the response. Obviously, the yeah, parish priest... They, they, they went first. Yeah, but the parish priest was right in front of her. So right. don't you think he knew? Right. Yeah. True. That's always a good point to go to the pastor and say, Father, you know... You know, it's always a good thing to talk to the priest. I would completely agree with you on that. Yes. Somebody had a question here? No? Okay. Yeah. Basic, basic answer. God always provides for everything we need, but He wants His our response. He wants our response. He gives us everything, but He's not going to give us only those things which provoke in us no response whatsoever. He wants our love, and love is freely given. Right? Therefore, there must be an occasion not to give this love. That's why. It was also Adam's duty to till and guard. He gave it to him, which means he would have been with him, allowing him to successfully do it. But obviously, Adam decided otherwise. Yes. Yes. Yes, it is entirely, entirely possible that the serpent had already spoken to Adam. That's why I'm saying the fear or the complicity may be that Adam encountered the serpent first. And the answer did not go the way it should have been. Right? And then what we're seeing here is really the worsening of it. Because effectively, the Eve represents the temple. She represents the church. The serpent is already in there. Obviously, the guy was not doing what he's supposed to do. Yeah. Yes. No, it's not incorrect to say that God tests us. God does test us, but He will not test us beyond our strength. And the reason why He tests us is because oftentimes, we don't know ourselves. Right? And so the testing of God is His way of holding us by the hand and showing us we can do things we never thought we could. It's always for our good. He's not testing us as in, let me see how much weight I can put on you until you collapse. He's the opposite. He thinks you can lift 100 pounds. I'm sure you can lift actually 200. See, the yeah, but the problem with this is that it, ha it leaves you with this unsatisfied feeling. To know that you're tested is a good thing. But to know that you're not tested and you're feeling that you are kind of makes it really hard to go through it. Because testing is not easy. It's tough. Right? So that's why I, I wouldn't shy away from saying, no, He does. God does test us, but He will never test us beyond our strength. It's always for our good to build us up. Yeah. Yes? No, the fruit, as far as we can tell, is a supernatural thing. It's not a natural fruit. So it's not a fig, it's not an apple, it's not a natural. It's a supernatural entity that we can't fully fathom or understand. Absolutely, there was a tree of life that provided them with eternal life. What it was, we don't know. I mean, the fathers will tell you it's the cross of Jesus Christ. 
St. Ephraim will, will speak a lot about the tree as the cross, right? But what the tree was and what that tree of uh, knowledge of uh, evil and good was, we really can't tell. But we, we understand their purpose, but we don't know what they are. Maybe, but there's a reason why it's not described. It's because even if it was described, it will leave us hungry, so to speak. We can't understand it. It's a language of heaven that we don't have. Yes. Let's talk about babies dying or about any other event. Here's the problem we run into. You see, a lot of it is also man-made. Everybody dies. Agree? All right. We know that, but when it happens, we cannot forget it. That's what we, it's, it's, isn't it kind of surprising? We're always surprised by death. I mean, it's the one thing we know for certain is going to happen. But we always act surprised when it happens. It's like, it's not supposed to happen now. Well, when? Why are we always surprised when death happens? We're surprised, we're shocked, we're... Well, okay. I'm talking just about death, right? What, the, the, the hard part in death for believers are two. The two parts. The first one, is this person saved? That's the real question. Has this person fulfilled his purpose in life, which is to go to heaven? And the second one, which is hard for us, is the separation. Not being able to see somebody, missing somebody, the voice, the whatever they used to say, the talk, etc. is hard on us. And God helps us through this by His consolation. All right, so on average, a Catholic, on average, should be able to get over it, meaning come back to a normal state of life, not be giddy and celebrate, but at least behave normally within six months. Right? That's what the church says, um, a, um, uh, the... Um, Mourning period should be about six months. Right? And then you get on with life. Otherwise, you're insulting God. How come you take this person from me? Well, excuse me, who's God here now? All right? So that's, you see how we make it complicated on ourselves? Why shouldn't a baby die? I mean, who's the creator here? Me? No, he is. Who decrees that no baby should die? Who has that authority? We don't. He does. Right? So if we are in this, this, this position where we are already saying to God, let your will be done, let your kingdom come, let your will be done. In my life, today, whatever is mine is yours. And we work on it every day, it lessens the blow. We've disciplined ourselves to expect that. But when we live as if everything is owned to us and owed to us, we made it twice as hard. Do you see the point? So it's not always that God tests us to death, it's that we test ourselves because... We've got it all wrong. Like there's, this, there's a man who died recently. Imagine this. He was a father. He died. He was an older man. And there were 25 priests at his funeral. 25 priests at his funeral. So when I saw his son, who was a good friend of mine, I didn't say condolences. I'm sorry. I'm not passing away. I didn't say anything. All I said was, I'm jealous. I mean, this is a good Catholic friend of mine. So he's, he's, he's strong in his faith. He knew exactly what I was talking about. You just go past those situations we get ourselves into. Death is what? It's a manly thing. It's a virtuous thing. It's a thing we do with strength. A true woman, when she knows that somebody's dying, go and help them prepare to die. Not lose it and then we need to take care of her. That's a woman of faith. Death is part of life. Yes. Yes. We, no one can go to heaven without baptism. Let's be very clear on this. All right, so that's the hard part with babies dying outside of baptism, especially aborted children. Uh, there are attempts done today to, to find a way to say that those children go to heaven. 
but there hasn't been found, no one has found a way to go around the fact that the child was not baptized. And a child that is unbaptized cannot go to heaven. Why? Because baptism is what is the beginning of turning someone who's a natural soul into someone with a supernatural soul. You understand? It's like taking a dog and making him a man. It has nothing to do with how good the dog was. The dog may be wonderful, but when the dog died, it was a dog. And there's nothing can change about it. Unless there's ways to turn him into a man, he will never be adopted in a human family. So likewise with heaven. You need baptism to be incorporated in the life of grace. Without the life of grace, you can't go to heaven. So only those who have been baptized, either through baptism of water, baptism of desire, baptism of blood, can go to heaven. Those are the general norms. Therefore, aborted children who are unbaptized, the best we know today, according to St. Thomas, is that they will live on earth with the um, a natural bea- uh, beatitude, which is what Adam had. But they will never partake of the, of the uh, beatific vision. Is when you basically give your life for someone else, to save someone else for Christ. Okay? Yes. The church teaches in uh, the, uh, the, the Council of Vatican II that a man who follows the dictate of his conscience, meaning the natural law inscribed in his heart, can arrive to salvation. However, it is also true that there is no salvation outside of the church. God knows that, and that's how he willed it. That's why Christ said, many go down the way of perdition, only very few find the gate to heaven. The fathers are unanimous, the majority of man, mankind go to hell. That's a, that's a stark reality we live in, but that's the truth. Now, you remember one thing, you and I, need to understand that this, is, this will be seen in the, in, the, in the justice of God. Right? So we have to see it in that, in that way. God essentially told us through Christ, when Christ came, He opened the gates of heaven for us, and the church is now across the whole world. Right? So today, to say that there's somebody who hasn't heard of Jesus Christ is becoming harder and harder. Man makes make a choice. But that's why it's so imperative for the church to always be evangelizing, always be sending missionaries for that purpose. We can never stop. Okay? Nothing is impossible to God, but only, let me put it you this way, God doesn't owe us to take us to heaven. Do you understand? When Adam and Eve committed original sin, we were all destined to hell. It is not an injustice on God's part to open up the gates of heaven. And that some will attain it and others not. He doesn't owe us this. He got his son to pay the price. Not that he owed us anything. Do you, do you understand? Yes? Pardon? Yes, they're in heaven. Adam and Eve are in heaven. Any other question? All right, so why don't we finish with a word of prayer? We hope you've enjoyed this talk from Corbono. For more information about this and other talks, please visit our website at www.corbono.com. Thank you and God bless you.